0: Welcome to the Three Wins Podcast, brought to you by Legacy Advisory Partners. My name is Sean Leiden, and I'm the producer of the Three Wins. And today, Russ Klemmer, the president at Legacy, speaks with Zane Terrence, the managing director at Founders Advisors and author of the book, 17 Reasons Your Company Is Not Investment Grade and What to Do About It. This episode is packed with practical advice and strategies to help you avoid the common entrepreneurial pitfalls to build an investment-grade company that's built to last. You don't want to miss this. If you find this type of content to be valuable, please hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and please leave a review. This will let us know what you think and also help others Find the three wins. Now, on to this next episode of the Three Wins Podcast. All right.
1: Welcome back to the Three Wins Podcast. I've got Zane Terrence from Founders Advisors in Birmingham, Alabama with us today. Welcome, Zane. Appreciate you being on the Three Wins Podcast with us.
2: Man, excited to be with you, Russ. I appreciate
1: you. Absolutely. So Zane is an author, business leader, business owner family leader, life and church leader, a very well-rounded individual. And specifically today, we're going to pay attention to his work with founders, his work with founders, advisors, and business leaders, and a lot of his life experience within a book that he wrote. But for all who were gathered and listening and watching the podcast today, I want to give everybody a general outline of the three wins and kind of the context that we're bringing Zane and his book into so at Legacy, we have the three wins and it's a financial conversation for any business leader, business owner. And what we're trying to do is set up the three different groups of people that need to win. In any, you know, for-profit institution, we're talking about shareholders and a mixture of shareholders. And that can be different types of shareholders that are involved. But as anybody that has that risk on the table and they've got an equity piece in a company, they've, they've got an idea of what they want to do. And So we start with defining that win. It's a, it's a question about what's enough, and then we look at, well, if that, especially if that owner is involved in the business, then what does it look like for that owner not to be involved in the business? How does a business continue to succeed? And So that's a short-term transition question, and really, for the founder and an owner of a business, it's kind of, the question is, what do we really want this thing to become? What is our big idea for this, and where do we want to see it go, and what's the idea? And we know that there's always a transition in the future. We just don't always know when. So we wanna plan well. So that's defining the, the shareholder win. The second piece is the corporate win. And that's all other stakeholders. And specifically because we're a financial advisory firm, we're looking at the numbers. What does it mean for that corporation to succeed? So it's building a pro forma, looking at what it means to succeed, building a net income budget, And then making sure that there are opportunities financially for everybody to succeed within the business, all the stakeholders from the top to the bottom. What does that look like and how do you plan for growth in that? And the the next, uh, the final win over on the right hand side of the page is really the key leader win. All the people who make it so, who have the company secrets, who could really go out and either uh, help lead another organization or open their own shop. How do you retain them and incentivize them to stay, but they also get to participate at a high level in the success they're helping create. And so when you when you take those three wins into consideration, you're able to build a nice plan, a nice business for the future, and you've got everybody roll, uh, going in the same direction. And so with what we call the grade eight virtues, when you build a culture around everybody winning, it really requires the eight virtues and those are designed to impact the company and create the collaboration effect on profits. So that's a little bit of a background of where we come from with legacy and we're excited to have you Zane kind of talking uh, through how you approach business owners and and founders of business uh, businesses and kind of walking through uh, a big decision, which is ahead of them, some sort of transition, right? And that's kind of the, the, so, so tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and, and how you got started. And, and specifically, uh, you know, if, you, if people want a copy of the book, we want to make sure they understand what book we're referencing here. It's 17 reasons your company is not investment grade and what to do about it. And so, you know, just like any parent, you know, their, their kid is the prettiest, most handsome Oh, yeah. Writer. And so your business as a founder, as a business owner, yours is always worth a lot. It's valuable and a lot of people would want to go buy it. And so really what you've done is say, hey, how do you really assess that situation? How do you talk through that? Um, but it's really for all business owners. And what you do is help them systematically talk through that question and really get into it. So give us a little background, how, where you come from
2: and what, what you do and how you do it. how and, sure. and kind of Show me that for us. Sure. Um, thank you, Russ. And and again, I really appreciate that context because, of course, as you know, for our firm founders, uh, the grade eight and the three wins have really shaped us. So we really appreciate the investment you put into our organization. And um, a little bit about me: um, I'm getting a little older now, Russ. Being a being a tech guy, I was always like I wanted to look older. I wanted to have gray hair. I wanted to have a few wrinkles because I was young in the business um, when I when I started at IBM, and, and I always felt like I looked too young. Well, that is not a problem anymore. I've got several wrinkles and a lot of gray hair, but um, I started with IBM. Um, I went to Auburn to school, and I was blessed to co-op with IBM. Um, a gentleman that I cut his grass, um, and really was his next-door neighbor growing up, was a leader um, at IBM, and he always said, Zane... When you become a junior in college, I'm going to sponsor you. It'll be up to you to interview and do everything, but I'm going to sponsor you um, to come work at IBM as an intern. And can I tell you, Russ, that changed my life? Yeah. trajectory of my whole career. And um, I put in the acknowledgments of my book. Thank you, Mr. Robinson, for what you you did for me to give me a shot. Because back then, IBM, my daughters, Russ, that are – 23, and I have a 19-year-old daughter and 23-year-old twins. They don't even really know who IBM was. But back then, IBM was kind of like a Google or an Amazon or an Apple. You know, it it was kind of like a company where you could could get started and learn some stuff. So, very grateful to IBM. The day I graduated from college, I started full-time with them. My first career was 12 years with IBM. I had four different jobs because IBM stood for I've Been Moved. And those four different jobs um, started off in in services, and and um, then kind of went through the marketing organization at IBM. My last uh, stint with IBM, uh, I was uh, helping lead uh, co lead a a practice uh, in IBM for IBM Global Services. So still lived in the South. I lived all over um, a little bit all over the South, but I got to come back to Montgomery, Alabama, where I was from but I really lived on the road um, and um, out of Atlanta. I I worked out of Atlanta, my office was um, there. And we were blessed enough to be working on a project for Federal Express. We were helping them do a uh, training piece of software and long story short, if it's not too late, my practice built a web-based testing tool for Federal Express that IBM ended up a year later letting me take that intellectual property, leave IBM, they helped fund me in kind to start a company that gave me all my software, all my hardware, um, all the the advice from software engineers, left um, IBM, that was in 1997, and started my own company called Virtual Learning Technologies. And that's, Russ, when I started becoming familiar with, oh my goodness, there's this thing called beyond the bank capital. There's a way really for founders of private companies to traverse and to navigate the debt and the equity continuum. So as an owner, I started, I raised money from IBM. They, they, they gave me income money. Then I had uh, a venture capitalist and then I had a private equity. So did that for three years. Uh, we ended up getting a patent on web-based testing with that product that IBM gave me. At that time, my investors, some of them said, "My board members, then you're really not a great operator. Yeah, we ought to sell this business." I got the patent in February of 2000, and we ended up selling it to a publicly traded company, Houghton Mifflin, in May of 2000. When I saw that process for us, I said, "Oh my, I missed my calling." I wish I could be a market maker like Chip Porter. My banker was, we traveled around all over selling the company and what it could be with the right partner and the right leadership. And that was another key time in my career um, to where, you know, I was, I was at the right place at the right time. But we sold that business, I stayed with the company Hope Mifflin for a year out of Boston. And then um, very, um, pretty much decided, man, I wanted to go kind of do it again. And so I started a venture capital model incubator. And again, all this, I'm biased by my experiences, Russ. I'm not saying I'm right, but I do see the world a certain way based on where I was when. And boy, this affected me. I started a VC model incubator in 2001 with some of my partners. We started investing in small uh, companies. And boy, did I learn a lot. I don't know about you, but I've learned more in my failures than I've ever learned in my victories. I was not a real good investor, (laughs) and some of these seventeen reasons I wish I had understood better at that time. But it was it was good. But for six years, we had that incubator. I had six software companies, and by God's grace and my mom's prayers, we were able to sell one of those that I had jumped down in and become a the CEO of, of Reveal Technologies to a publicly traded Indian company. When we did that, I was like. We were able to get the investors their money back. I was just glad to be out. I was 40 years old and I was on the board. Uh, you know, my partner, uh, Dwayne Donner, very well. of uh, This bank that he had started, Founders Investment Banking, We changed our name since to Founders Advisors. Um, and he said, Zane, why don't you come and be a river guide on our platform? You're an entrepreneur, you're an operator. You've raised a lot of capital. You've invested a lot of capital in software companies. Why don't you come on a real investment bank's platform and help other founders really figure out what is the best path for their company, whether they want some liquidity, they want to do an esop, they want to raise some capital. they want to raise some debt. They just want to make their company better. And that's how I got here and Russ, for the last 15 years, I've been on this platform with Dwayne, my partner, and uh, Wesley Leg. And, you yep. know, you've really helped us through some um, big decisions as partners. We all have exactly the same values, but we have different personalities. So you all helped us and we've been blessed. And I think we've done uh, in my practice, uh, I, I run the technology practice. I'm a software guy that started at IBM, uh, the tech enabled services practice and software. And since then, we've been blessed enough to work with... Uh, I've closed up my team. I guess 87 uh, institutional deals for technology founders. So um, that's that's what I do, and that's really what shaped me into finally writing this book. that took me five years to do. Man, I had some I had uh, had some challenges along the way. It's one of the hardest things I've, I've done. But anyway, sorry for the long introduction. But that that's really shaped me and shaped why I wrote the book.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, somebody can't just sit down and write this book. You've learned those 17 reasons through all of it, not only being on the other side of those deals, trying to sell something that's yours, trying to sell something that you've put blood, sweat, and tears into, and knowing and hearing no. That's right. And you kind of distilled into those 17 reasons. So. It, so there's excellent you know, history and background. And, and so talk a little bit more about, so Founders is not just, y'all are based out
2: of Birmingham, but you're not just, you do other kinds of deals, right? Yes, that's exactly right. We've got, I think, and uh, we've got six bankers starting next week. So I think we're up to about 38 bankers. We have offices um, in Dallas, Houston, but our headquarters is in, is in Birmingham. So I run the technology practice, but we have six other managing directors that run their different pieces of the business. You know, industrials, uh, consumer, healthcare, uh, business services. So uh, industrial technology. So we have specialists because Russ, I'm a big believer to help and stakeholders really assess their options when it comes to the capital markets. You. Need to be a subject matter expert in that industry. It's it's tough. If you don't understand the industry, so yes, we have six six practices. Yeah, it, it, so
1: um, you know, all of those are are tra- You're trying to sell the entire business or some of the business, or, or raise, raise capital to do a, a growth project. So, what what are all the different uh, banking services that you guys provide and help? shape for these uh, founders and, and guys who want to do different things? What are some? Of yeah,
2: ab- absolutely. Great, great question. Really, it's all along. You need capital to help you execute on your growth strategy. So that could be from a debt standpoint, you know, you want to find the best available debt that the market has to offer. And there's all kinds of debt, you know, there's senior debt, there's junior debt, there's, you know, Unitron's debt, so debt might be the best way for you to fund your business or even to do a recap. If you're making enough money, you can do a debt recap, just like you, finance, you, you uh, refinance your house when the interest rates are low, take that money out tax-free. Same thing with a business. Or you can look at equity. That could be from venture capital investors, uh, family offices, uh, private equity groups, or even strategic buyers. Just like I sold my companies to strategic buyers, There's a whole set of financial buyers out there as well. And owners, Russ, are at an information disadvantage. They've been running their business their whole career, right? They've been focused on their industry. I was a software guy. I didn't know all the options. So what we do, we listen to the goals of our clients based on where they are, at what season of their life, where their business is, what are the external and internal factors going on in their business, and we help them get ready and get prepared to go out to the market confidentially and get all the options possible that could that could uh, meet their needs. And also, we do that in a fashion where we're working for them to help them get the best possible deal you know they could ever get because we're running a, a confidential but very competitive auction. You don't want to sell your house to just. The first person that comes up, knocks on door, says, hey, I want your house. You want to run competitive auction. Um, and so that's that's what we the, do. The old, the old saying is if you have one buyer, you don't have any. Exactly. And, and, and you need stalking horses. And you need and, and we see it over and over. The data is so clear, you know, in, in the banking uh, the banking industry, investment banking, that a process can yield you know, amazing results. So, we don't price the business to the outside world like you would if you were selling a piece of real estate. Right. We talk to the owner about what this could be worth, but we underwrite it, we package it, just like you're doing an initial public offering. If you're a public company, you go out and you make a market to drive that stock up. We do the same thing with private companies. We underwrite, already, we build all these unit economic models to demonstrate the value of this company you know, what you've really got, how much, you know, future risk-adjusted cash flow you can produce. And then we go out with all that underwriting and packaging and and we try to build a bit more to where people are just like, I have got to have this company. Um, yeah. And results, you know, in a, in a better outcome for the business owner and the shareholders and all the other stakeholders, like you said, in the three wins, because if you find the right partner for that company, typically they want to grow it. So they're going to, you know, do whatever they have to do to keep the, you know, the top employees there, right? They're going to do whatever they have to do uh, to make sure they can maintain the competitive advantage that made you valuable in the first place. So that's what I love about what we do, Russ. You know, it, it, it is a win-win-win if you if you do this because you're finding the optimum partner. And valuation and structure of the deal matter, but yeah. there's 38 other things I write in my book that you want when you transition your business or when you just get an investor. There's other things that are absolutely critical to that partner that you choose.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's what I want to I want to kind of roll up our sleeves and dig into the the book, the 17 reasons a little bit because you know, what we in our mindset, you know, depending on where we begin interacting with a business owner, uh, you know, what t- part of the timeline—whether it's just a couple of years after they kind of got off the, you know, maybe let's see if it actually works—kind of mindset, they've proven track record, they are going forward. They may not even be thinking about, you know, what's down the line, but inevitably there is going to be a transition, and so as you build your business even though a transition, you know, further down the line, you're not thinking about it right now. If you're going to build your business, build it with these 17 things in mind. Why not? Because you're getting it ready. It's marketable. It's valuable. And for all of those who listen in that are, you know, family businesses, you know that you've got some kids or, you know, whatever. It's going to stay within the family. There's going to be some sort of passing it on or you're going to do a sell to you know an internal leadership team. You know There's different ways of doing something that still can be mindful of these 17 things because at the end of the day, I know this sounds cynical, but everything is for sale. That's right. Everything's for sale. If it's marketable and if it's valuable to someone else, everything's for sale. And so with that in mind, even though the plan and the intentions are over here, things can change. So this is good to have in the back. And that's what the encouragement is. Think about these things, learn these things so that you're not just owning your job. You don't just own a business to have a job. And when it's when you're tired of doing it, you're just going to roll it up. And well, let's see, you know, I don't know. We'll just kind of figure that out later. So that's really for the folks who are listening and want to have that mindset. So So kind of get into the, how did it take shape? Who told you to write this thing? Why did it take five years? Give me all of it on the background of the book itself.
2: Sure. And and you make such a good point. I want to say this. People say, you know, why why do I need this information if I never want to really sell my business? If I just want to transition it to my employees, my family, do an ESOP. Here's why. Is there any business owner, Russ, that doesn't want more cash flow, more peace of mind, more freedom, a better business to run? Because, you know, I like the word steward, like I know you do as as well with the, with the great aid and the virtues. We're a steward of our people, our processes, our systems, our business. This is about being the best business you can possibly be, whether you maintain ownership or you transition ownership. So that's the reason these are important. And I really finally, you know, codified these things. Because over and over, Russ, I saw patterns in, this, in the due diligence that you know, buyers would run when they would really assess a company. Just like you might go get an executive physical with your doctor, okay. these institutional buyers that are the ones that are really going to pay up because they appreciate a solid business. Okay. Over and over, I saw these patterns. And um, none of this is like rocket science. You know, you can look at this list and say, thank you, Captain Obvious, for telling me things that I already know. But sometimes we don't focus on the things we already know. We don't execute. So I did it because over and over, Russ, I found myself having to work with families, basically families that own businesses when they thought they had something that they were going to be able to exit and create significant wealth for generational wealth, also for giving goals that they had, find out that their company really wasn't worth that much. They had made some good cash flow over the years. But I would say, I hope you invested that cash flow in stocks and bonds and apartment complexes because your business really doesn't have any um, enterprise value. And some of these businesses, it would surprise you. And I remember one particular family I was talking with, that we had looked at all their data. Russ, this family, they were making over $6 million in EBITDA a year at this time. So that was like, wow, that's a great business. Yeah. We dug in, that business was not sellable. They just needed to take the cash flow and basically let it unwind based on the industry they were in, the market, yeah. uh, some of the headwinds in that market. Yeah. They had the capital to shift and to pivot like they needed to. Yeah. yeah. They were going to be blockbustered, you know, like Netflix did the blockbuster or like Uber did the yellow cat. This was not good. And um, so I wrote it and kind of that negative deal kind of get people's attention. This is the reason you're not investment grade because, Russ, we need to know the truth. Mm -hmm. We need to be operating the truth. So that's how it came about. And I just kept gathering data, watching, looking at pattern recognition. And my experiences being the river guide of these deals over and over and over, I just kept documenting, telling the stories, and then trying to get it short enough because it got really too big. Um, and and then I had a lot of good advisors help me, so it just was kind of a, a process over the years. And and um and hopefully it's something that's valuable and a lot of people. I say, man, just look at the takeaways at the end of the chapters and the recommendations. And it's just a great test to just test yourself, just like if I said. Hey, um, Russ, I've got, you know, one of the top family specialists in the world. And he says he's found out there are six major factors for what makes an amazing father. I mean, and the data proves this. You know, God, we trust all others bring data. They've done all the research. These six elements drive what makes an unbelievable father. Wouldn't, Wouldn't you be curious about that? Just to make sure you're checking the box. Some of these things you're going to do better than others. And it's the way these things relate to each other. And so that's what these 17 reasons are. is like, how does your barrier to entry relate to your brand? You know, and do you understand that? Are you gonna, Are you the best people in your company, the most talented people working on the things that give you a competitive advantage? Or do you have them working on new products? You know, so it's a relationship, just a good check. And accountability to say, you know, am I doing the things that if I'm, a, you know, I should be doing?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, for when we talk about the three wins, we're talking about a a, a balancing, right? We're talking about a balancing where yes. this owner isn't an owner without the, the business, right? Without the corporation, the key leaders, they're not. They may be leaders somewhere else, but specifically that function is within the context of that. And so the business has to win for either of the other two to win, right? That's the balancing. But when it comes to relationships, that's exactly how we set up the grade eight, the eight virtues that allow for the collaboration effect uh, on profits to occur within the three wins. And so you you, you you get really good maybe over here on, on uh, you know, the acceptance and accountability or, or uh, courage or, you know, so you get And then you look over here and be like, oh, man, this one I got to really work on. But it's not really one or the other. It's not really I'm going to take a list and tackle each of these at the same time. They're all interconnected. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're reviewing those all at the same time. And that's the same thing. It's not a, a list of things. So there's a list of chapters. There's not a list of seven things. There's 17 things that impress upon each other. you on one, you got to know where it impacts the other. So that's really good how that's set up, and that's most things. Most things in life, when you're walking through, and that's, you know, you're saying, how, what, how am I planning for this? How am, I, how am I going through this? You talk about the example of the dad. You know, just because you think you got to sit with one kid doesn't mean you've got to sit with the other. That's right. A good, that, dad, a good dad to each of the individual, you know, kids. And so you get, it's a push and pull in, in being able to, to, to watch that. So anyway, that a little bit
2: of a diversion, that's a really good example. No. And, and again, just, it's the relationship of all this. It's the balanced performance. And I think that's the key to winning in so many areas. You know, even if we were talking about our physical health, Russ, and like working out, you know, when we were in college or <clears throat> I was a lot younger, you see some people that just are working on those mirror muscles. They look good, but then they're, you know, they're not doing squats. They're not doing deadlifts and their core gets weak or their legs. They got bird legs walking around a big old bicycle. You know, you remember that, the mirror mu- You don't want that. And the investment grade, I see what these institutional buyers really want. It's a balanced company that is excellent with their processes and their systems, but they value these different things uh, in relationship. And at the end of the day, Russ, a a business is really just a set of people, processes and systems with some core assets, whether they're bulldozers or the software, aimed at a target market. And you got to get that running in the same direction. And the difference of one of those related working very well and not working well is a lot of value. Yeah, you see two companies in the exact same industry. <clears throat> one of them, the team is orchestrated. They're putting the row, you know, the um, ores in the water at the same time. Those businesses are worth a lot of money. And then you see some that have a lot of talent, but they're coordinated. They're not focused on, you know, some of these basic 17 reasons, or they have a terrible one. You see some that are doing very well at eight or nine, but one of them totally disqualifies. So it's just that awareness to look at it, not as a list, but as a holistic system and to understand how they relate. So you made a very good, very good point about that. And again, that's the reason the three wins and the grade eight. Are so critical to weave within your systems and processes. Because you can do everything right, but have a core um, issue with your people function. If you're dysfunctional as a team, totally disqualifies you from an institutional deal. Because buyers do not want uh, dysfunctional teams. They hate drama. They hate it. yeah yeah drama. Doesn't make any money.
1: No. No. a news organization or a TV station or something like that didn't make any money. And, and so, seventeen of these things you talked about distilling it with with some good feedback from other people, distilling it from you know Professor Zane Terrence to uh, you know, Vistage Speaker Zane Terrence. You know, getting getting it where you can message it in a, in a way that it's not a you know a, a six month term. But so when you go through these seventeen. Just kind of, you know, hit on a couple of them that, um, you know, all of them are important, but hit on a couple of them that, you know, are are what you're seeing maybe today in the current environment where businesses are sitting. um, And I know you see different industries, specifically you you lead the tech uh, team there, but you see different industries and other other businesses. What are really people really pay attention to out of the 17 um, in in today's state? You know, great yeah. unknown coming forward and <clears throat> all these. different. What do you think people really need to hear out of these 17 and pay attention to just for them to get started? If they go and get the book and, and get started and look into some of this,
2: right? And finally, had a couple of minutes. And of course, you have to interrupt me, you know, I'll take more, but there's some of these, especially in today's environment, Russ, that are just absolutely critical. And we, by the way, as we sit here talking in June. You know, 2021, one of the hottest M&A markets I've seen in the 22 years that I've been talking to institutional investors and buyers. Um, Post-COVID, the valuations are even higher than pre-COVID. But guess what? For quality companies, for 17 reason companies, yeah. if you're a fixer-upper, there's not much value. These great buyers, they don't want a fixer-upper, Russ. They want a seventeen reasons platform company that they can execute their strategy to grow even faster. So here's a couple. First of all, the importance of predictable cash flow. And I heard a lot of people's feelings on this. In the the business I'm in, Founders Advisors, we have can have lumpy cash flow because we make our money as bankers on a transaction. Right. Family businesses they sell their business one time right? So in this particular area, we're kind of lumpy. But compared to other investment banks, we're pretty good. And that's the key on these 17 reasons. You don't compare yourselves against people that aren't in your cohort, that aren't in your industry, they're not competitive. You compare yourself, your gross margin, your barriers to entry, your um, recurring revenue, to people that are in your similar type business, right? Right. Just like if I was going to go get in a CrossFit competition, I wouldn't compete against 28-year-olds. That wouldn't be pretty. I compete against my cohort, 55-year-olds. So, first one I would say is that the, the predictability of your revenue. If you wake up every January 1st and all your revenue is what I call go get, right. that's not a great business, right? A great business is one where you have recurring revenue, and you can go add to that. You can go get new business. But if you didn't do anything, except keep your good product, good customer service, cha you're going to make money. Now you go out and aim your marketing and sales efforts to net new business. Unbelievable. It's the difference in recurring revenue, reoccurring revenue, which is not as valuable as recurring. Recurring happens at the same time each year, each month or each quarter, like the rent payment or like Spotify or cable TV. Reoccurring, you might sell some of the same things to the same people, but you don't know exactly when. Right. One time revenue, that's not valuable, Russ. Or surprise sometimes, like, well, I thought I was gonna sell my business that I have one time revenue mainly, and you know, hope I sell somebody else. It's not worth much. So that's key. All revenue streams are not created equal. One thing that's out there, people don't understand. They say, Hey, Zane, what is my company gonna trade for? My manufacturer. It's going to be a multiple of EBITDA, a multiple of revenue, a multiple of gross margin, none of the above. It's going to be a sum of the parts of a multiple of all of your different revenue streams. So if you have a product warranty that they pay a little bit for every month or maintenance, that's going to trade maybe for 12 times EBITDA if you're a manufacturer. But if you're manufacturing some frame that you're selling one time, that might trade for four times EBITDA. So that's one of the things I tell people, really focus on your revenue streams and try to create subscription revenue streams. And I have a lot of businesses that are like contractors and manufacturers. They say, well, that's not fair. I'm not a software as a service company or I'm not a cable company or, or, you know, a a utility um, that people have to subscribe. Russ, some of the best businesses I've ever seen that sell. Are these businesses that build a subscription-based service in a traditional business? For example, let your customers break the line. Let them break the line, and they will pay you extra money for that as a subscription service. Oh, I'll get—I'll give you a better um, service level agreement, but it's going to cost you fifteen percent more. But I'll be on site within an hour if your equipment breaks, versus. 24 hours, they'll pay you a fortune. And that's a subscription-based service. So that's number one. I've got to say this one. Again, everybody says they know this and they care about it, but it's critical. People bet on the jockey, not the horse. So number six is talent management. If you can't recruit and retain players to your platform, you will never be a 17 reasons company. Because great people do what? They produce. Great results. So you talk to any coach, I don't really love Nick Saban because I'm an Auburn guy, but I love his processes and systems. He says, talent, talent. I'll bring five stars in here, then put them in a great, uh, uh, you know, he, he puts them in a great process, but they're five stars. At Auburn, we get a two star, you know, and try to put them in a good process. So um, people, and if you as a leader aren't spending Investing your time pouring that spiritual term into your top leaders, that's not smart. It's just not smart. Even if you just want to make more money, your people are the ones that deliver on the promises of your organization. And you can never scale. If 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 you as the owner have to deliver on your promises in front of your clients, but the second your people can deliver on those promises without you even being there. Now, my friend, you have a business. You have a 17 reasons business, and that sort of that I mean, that's worth money. And and there's a bunch of them, but I gotta hit this one. Let me hit that oh, one yeah, just go ahead.
1: That's really the that's really the third win. And and what we talk about is if, if a business owner can get out of the middle of a circle where everybody is looking to the business owner to tell them what to do or to give instruction. We've got a we've got a guy that we've been talking to for a while. And, and really big construction company, but he calls himself a wizard. Hmm. That's the worst title ever for a business. You need to be called the, oh, is he still the owner? Yes, yes. I didn't even know he was still the owner. Well, good. that's a good business. Because what you want to be able to do is remove yourself from the center of the circle. And even if you still want to be employed, you still be the CEO, the president, the chairman of the board, wherever you want to do. But it's not you're the, you're not the only person that can do the job. If you can achieve that status, then you have created a key leader team that can drive the business forward. And that's where we come in and say, how do you let them participate in the success they're helping you create as the shareholder? Yes, they'll go and do their other thing. And I love what you know your, your culture does not attract or keep the key for best people. What we found when you the great hate the great people want to be around a virtuous culture yes and guess what they do they go and tell their friends hey I found a really great place to work that's right it, amen I mean that's the easiest recruiting tool ever you don't got to pay all these other people to go and find these other people so it really ends up working itself out and, and what we you know really enjoy about that is it feels good. You want to be able to get to a point, if you want your business to be valuable, you want to get to a point where you are not necessary in the firm. Yes. You may choose to be employed and have a role and have a title and be a part of the team and everything else, but you're one person and somebody else can come in and run that. And that's really, it's got to be, I know it's hard, we've seen it, for a founder who had to play every role, who was the culture in the very beginning, who had to play every role, who's done every single nitty-gritty thing, changing the trash cans, to, you know making the big banking decisions. It's hard to let go of that and to be able to see yourself getting out of the middle of the circle. But that's why we say, start as soon as you can. Begin identifying the things that you need to get out of um, and it, it, it start that process. Those are really,
2: those are really two good points. Hey, and let me just say one other thing because I'm a, I'm just gonna play like this is a safe place for us. Okay, I want to get vulnerable. Hey, I struggle with this, I struggle with it. Y'all know, y'all yeah. coached us in this. I struggle with letting go and doing this. Like, oh no, are they gonna do it as well? Y'all have help. I think this takes coaching, I think a real leader. The I've just had to have coaching over and over to say, this is better for everybody, for you, for the business, for everybody to move in that role where you can enjoy your people thriving. Yeah. And, and then you have a real business that can scale. In my first two companies, Russ, I wouldn't have sold so, had to sell so quickly if, if I had had that skill and understanding. And it took really Coaching, mentoring people like y'all and, and, and David Harper uh, to really help coach me in that. And it's so wonderful. It's freedom. It's the most satisfying I've ever had in my career is watching our people mature and grow. And guess what? They're better than I ever could have been. So it's really a problem with pride and ego, but it, but it's painful too. It's not the best way to do it. Really talented leaders, they really learn how to push other people up. You know,
1: so. yeah, 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 and those are really those are really some things that you know. It's just it's not just confined to a founder in their business. It's all different kind of areas of life that we deal with that yes. struggle of not being the most important person in the world, or not being the one who has to give the assignment and has to have the best idea. And, but if you can get to that point where you're really collaborating with excellent people around you, everybody's in the right way. they know their assignment, everybody around the table values each other uh, and, and contributes to what the vision is, right? That's where you really, uh, not, not just a, a tangible value in the, in the tradability of the firm, marketability of the firm, But you create value in experience for those people who are are running and operating at the time. And when we talk about stakeholders, it's not just a financial perspective. It's people who say, I'm going to give my time and energy to this company in this vision. Yes. And even though you may have a great compensation program, great benefits program, they want to work somewhere where they're not being bought. They want to work somewhere where they say, "I'm ready." You know, it may be hard work, it may be some long hours here and there, but I want to go work somewhere where I know that my uh, contribution is valued, and it may also be really nice to be compensated for that. For exactly. That. Wrong with that? So that's really the the idea. and when when you get people collaborating at a high level like that, you're really just kind of saying, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna cast the vision. I'm gonna." Kind of talk about things where we could go, um, and then people just run. They go for it, and, the, and that's the collaboration effect of profits. And then you have the profits to share, right? you define for yourself what's enough, and, and then you're able to share what is above and beyond what you should be able to do in the business. It, you, it's, it's open and it's free. And, and some people say, well, that's an ESOP. Well, no, that's not necessarily an ESOP. You can do it as a, right. as a, a, a closely held family. It doesn't matter how you do it. Uh, but the, the thing
2: is getting the mindset,
1: getting the mindset. Man, that's right.
2: Hey, and I want to give two data points on this because if you ask any of these top investors, these private equity groups, where most of the people went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, You know, they're MBAs of finance. They're they're experts in valuing private companies. They will, if you ask them, what's the number one thing that drives outsized return on invested capital? I've had this question. I've asked a lot of private equity people that. You know what they say? People. The ability to get the right people because you get the right people, they'll pivot when they need to in a market. They'll get a new product. They'll make the right hires and fires. They'll get the right... Financing it's people we sold two companies one one to Amazon, okay, and one to Caterpillar. Mm-hmm. those were acquisition hires. The buyer wanted the team, so even if you were a selfish zone, it's all about letting your people thrive because that's where the value is. so the data's out there that is just critical. And you the more time you spend being a 17 reasons company that can attract talent, where does talent want to play? I mean if I have the choice to play at the University of Alabama or maybe another you know school, if I'm top five star talent, where do I really want to play? Even though Nick Saban might be hard, I want to play there. And then Nick Saban can remind him, oh, and by the way. More people play on Sundays that came from the University of Alabama than any other college in the world. So it is a it is a the right thing to do. And if you become a quality place, people can thrive. They know they're cared for. Uh, They know there's integrity. I mean, everybody wants integrity. Um, I'm telling you, that gets you a long ways. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: so those are really good, two, two good examples. What are some other examples you think are relevant
2: to the current time? Right now, if, I think this was five, if almost anyone can set up shop in your market and compete with you, you don't have anything unique, then you don't have a barrier to entry. You don't have what Warren Buffett calls a defensible moat around your business, your yeah. company. Competitors can just come in, fly in, get your castle, steal the food off your employees table, your table. You got to know why you're different. Yeah. I, do, I do coaching with companies at the Vistages, you know, that you talked about and I bring some of their executive team in and then the owners in and say, what's your barrier to entry? What makes you different? What's your secret sauce? You can't believe the number of times people disagree on. I mean, they say different things. You need to know what makes you different. What makes you the best company you can ever be? Invest there because that gives you pricing power. It gives you value. What do I do as a large company in a fragmented industry? I'm going to come in and I'm going to roll up pest control or alarm system companies or uh, pump uh, service manufacturers, diesel pump. What yeah. do I do? I'll look and say? Do I need to buy a company in that market, or could I go higher? Their best sales rep or their COO, and just hire them away from you. Yeah, you don't have a barrier to entry. You've got nothing. Yeah, so that's a big yeah. one.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, when you think about when you think about that, it's not uh, you know you're you're not sitting there trying to trying to come up with some patent that nobody else has that's ever right. seen or anything else, but the barrier to entry. Uh, and when you talk about coming and hiring the CEO or something like that, the barrier to entry could be a culture and yes. a, re- a retention plan Yes, where the CEO sitting there thinking, I don't know what your culture is like. And I sh- I sure know what I've got here. So it would take so much risk on my part to go and join you guys and you know, if that's the kind of CEO that you have, then you probably got the wrong CEO anyway. Right. The culture that you have. And that's where, you know, it's so beautiful to see kind of, you think through some of those things. And, um, and, and if if an owner is like, well, I just need to go find one and they'll be me, then you really got to struggle with, you know, find the right people. It takes a lot to be able to say, these are the right people that I need and the them. So that's a good example. But, you know, barrier to entry is also nice when you have some, some tech that nobody else has.
2: Right, right. And, and like you said, you know, there's some radical things. You say, oh, I have a patent or some, you know, uh, drug that, you know, nobody else has created. But some of these barrier to entries are really, you know, being able to keep good of your logistics company. Truckers, y'all, no, no, nobody, truckers are getting recruited like crazy. If you have a business that you have retention of your truckers, if you're a logistics company, it makes you worth a fortune. If you have um, customer service rates, your net promoter score, where customers just keep it's so high, other people come and say, "Man, there is no way we could come in with our brand and and steal them away because your net promoter score is so high. They're so loyal. Uh, supplier contracts, uh, geographies that you own as a distributor, where you have an exclusive ownership. Those things that just make it difficult. Even systems and processes where you have an outsized gross margin, if they come in and say, OK, you are a, um, a set of, uh, of auto shops that change oil and new tires or whatever. For some reason, you're making more gross margin than we're making in our big, big company you're doing something right. I don't really know what all your processes, your training programs are. I don't know if you're, if you designed your building better. I can't really figure it out, but I know you have a competitive advantage because you're selling for the same price I am and it costs you less to produce it. Or your product or service costs the same as them, but you can price higher because people know you're different. And so, uh, it, and, and, and some fleeting barriers to entry are like, well, I'm a low-cost provider. That's that, that's not good. Your, your big competitor can lower their price and beat you. It's those things that are deeper. Long-term contracts, a long history in, uh, in that market, certifications that your people have that some of the other companies don't have. So, yeah, yeah lots of examples of that, um, but that's a big one.
1: Yeah. And, and so barrier entry, you know, the, it, you look at it and, in, in, you know, some of these concepts, some of these things are tricky and I want to kind of transition into into how you kind of get, you know, really, really hands-on with folks and walk them through some of these things because it's one thing to hear you up there in a Vistage uh, talk or, you know, some other format in, uh, or and in, in hear these 17 things, kind of listen to you go through these things and or read the book and do the do the work at the back of the book and think through some of these things. But I would imagine for an average founder, and what we know about business the founders, entrepreneurs, uh, and you shared this testimony yourself, you're not a you're not a a, 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 a serial uh, business leader that is a, a CFO and you can do the CFO anywhere. You. Are, a, you are an expert in whatever that product or service or whatever that is that your business does. You just happen to also own the business, and so that's a big. Difference for people who haven't had this, uh, you know, th- these Ivy League, MBA backgrounds who kind of see all this big picture and know how to pull the string. How do you get these principles and truths into their minds and walk them through some of this stuff in a practical
2: and you know hands-on way? What's what are some I I so love that question, Russ, because I I just get frustrated. You know, too much information. Like Patrick Lencioni says, I love him as a coach and mentor. You know, it's not about content. It's not about information. It's about execution. So the first thing we do, the most powerful thing I've seen for myself and on my own areas of my life and, and in others that want to change, pick a few things, the big rocks, that will really move the chains. And first of all, you have to identify those big rocks. For my health, it's drinking water, sleeping, diet, and then exercise, right? I mean, that's the big rocks. We can kind of go through and help owners benchmark. You gotta compare yourself. My dad was a preacher, Russ, and he said, you can't compare yourself, Zane, because you're either gonna have an inferiority complex and feel shame, because Russ is better than you, or you're going to say, sure, I'm glad I'm better than Russ. You know, he's not as good as me. And then get a superior, you can't do it. Well, listen, if you're in business, or you want to win, or you're a coach, you better scout your competition. You better benchmark. So the way we make these 17 reasons come alive and put some teeth in them where you can actually do something, it's not so much data. You look at areas, benchmark against your competitors. Or you're really low against them, You've you've got to work on that, and we pick a few things that you can do, and then guess what you do? You delegate these. Include your people. You as the CEO, you know, unless you're you know very small and you just start more, like you said, you have to do it all. You can get your employees and say, hey, I want you to help us with our barriers to entry. Let's run a SWAT, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats to see if we can discover our barriers to entry. So. Get it down to a few things where you can say, woo, I'm not doing well here, or I'm really doing well here. And you might want to press the accelerator on that. If you're really beating your competition in certain areas, you might want to press the accelerator. So it's benchmarking, comparing yourself against your cohort, and taking a few items that you can execute on and hold yourself accountable as an organization with some metrics that you talk about at least once a month. Yeah.
1: So you know, I know that you guys you know kind of give these practical steps, um, but there's also a a self assessment they can do. Is that in the book somewhere, or how how do how do people get a hold of that, and how do they go through that?
2: Yeah, we've been working on this for a while, and the good news is we are about to announce it. It's a little bit in the book, but I say, hey, we're going to make an online tool. We're going to have a free assessment because yeah, help people build enterprise you know, value and investable grade companies because we have a healthy self-interest. I would like to help you go to market, but we love serving people. And sometimes we spend five years with a client before they ever want to do a transaction. But the better you can get on these 17 reasons, the more valuable you're going to be and the more sellable, transactable you're going to be. So we built a survey and an assessment that has layers and they go pretty deep, or you can take a very light survey or a deep one, and we're announcing that. Um, we're trying to announce that June, I think, the twenty sixth. And so we have some light assessments right now, but this one's going to be pretty deep and allows you to really go in and look at your brand, look at your growth, look at your your market size. Is your market size really big enough, or do you need to expand? You know, to to international markets. So that's what we're going to do to hopefully. Give an assessment that can help you get to the root cause quickly, just like your doctor would take your blood and compare these really important things. The doctor knows what they need to compare. Lipids, cholesterol, size of the lipids, you know, your calcium. We hopefully are going to have an assessment that says these are the critical things in your industry and and answer these questions and we'll kind of give a report of here's how you stack up. So that's what we're doing. And hopefully we're going to announce that in two weeks. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and and they'll be able to find that where. Yeah, that, that will be on our, our 17 reasons website, 17 reasons.com, 17 reasons.com. And that will all lead back to founders IB, Investmentbank.com, uh, which it'll it'll be there as well under, under our growth, um, our enterprise growth advisory services.
1: Yeah. And, and just, to, you know, as a reminder to everybody, so, you know, we mentioned some things from Legacy, um, but all, and, and you've seen, you know, you can get access to those in other videos, but specifically here in this video, look in the description section below, uh, and, and we want you to comment on it. We want you to, to hit the bell, hit the subscribe button so you can see these different things. Um, make sure you go and visit Zane's uh, LinkedIn page and be able to talk through some of that. And, and so all of the links to founders uh we'll have the uh link to the assessment in the in the description as soon as it's launched and ready to go any of the different things we talked about today you see all that in the description area a bunch of links there and and different opportunities to go there so that's 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 uh man that's some some uh uh really a lot of effort a lot of work to be able to take that to uh just about anybody that
2: wants to go and take that self-assessment yes and and and, and and thank you for asking about that, because that's my passion, is to make this implementable. Again, I don't need a long book on marriage or, or business, but I do need some practical steps on what are the real things that are going to move the change. Yeah. What are the things that I know this Friday, you and I are talking, did I do anything this week that really drove my enterprise value? And that's what we're trying to get to the root of, where we can allot our limited time, resources, capital, people... Toward those important big rocks, that's the key. And I just, I'm just passionate for owners that don't do this every day. Sometimes they're working on things that just don't deliver enterprise value. So,
1: yeah, and, and you know, when it everything I've heard and what you kind of see, and sometimes this is the negative connotation is that when you work investment in bankers, it's all about the, it's all about the dog. It's all about what you're going to get out of it. It's all about, you know, how they can get it to the market and get you. And, you know, you hear that from different people, but it's, it's firms that have uh, the, the people that care and to do it right and give you the different tools to be able to help you and inform you on that process and on that decision. And that's really what get some, some good instruction, not too much, but enough instruction where people who they know that they don't know a lot about it, but they can learn. They don't have time to learn, but they can learn and be informed and make a great decision. And that's kind of how you guys get in there. And that's what we really like about that. So say somebody, you know, they happen to to check, uh, uh, you know, deep things and they say, they, you know, they realize maybe I am investing great
2: material. What then? Yes. And then this is the beauty, Russ. They have options. They have so many options if they're investment grade. They can keep their business and say, this is awesome. Here are my goals. They look at their personal goals. Those three wins, too. What is it that I need to do, that I'm being called to do, that my, my life plan, my legacy is about? And you have options. That's all you want, right? And then you can say, OK, if I, if I want to transact, I want to take some chips off the table or bring in a partner to help do an ESOP. So many things I can do. Then. You get a banker in your space that understands it and sit down with them and they can help you say, hey, here's where we think the market would be confidentially. We think we'd get a lot of bids and kind of this range of valuation and structure. And then hopefully we can get a bid reward going and it can be way outside that, right? So you get a banker and they can help you develop and customize a process to go to market that the big publicly traded companies Use all the time with Wall Street bankers, right? To drive up their stock price or, or, or issue new shares, right? So yeah. that's what you do. You sit down with a banker and you plan, and, and you have your wealth managers there. You have yeah. CPAs there. You're, you're, a lot of people have their mentors and coaches and pastors with them because they realize I'm stewarding this asset. And um, a lot of people, Russ, um, are shocked. People think, people, People think that a lot of owners would believe their business is worth more than it is. Can I tell you, my experience is a lot of the greatest companies, the owners had no idea how much their business was really worth. And when they see that kind of capital that is being um, captive in a private company, they say, wait a second, I might want to lose 30% of that, right? 50% of that, all of it and put it in other places. And if we own publicly traded stock, you can sell little pieces of it, right? If you own a private company, unless you have a guide that is a broker-dealer investment bank, you don't even know where to start to sell 10% of your business or 50% or 100%. So that's kind of the next step is to think about your goals, sit down, look at your options. And if you're 17 reasons, you're going to be excited because there's a lot of people that want to partner.
1: Yeah. And that really is the you know the beauty of this is and what we like you guys and have been attracted to y'all's story and and, and you know as a as a firm at legacy we want to help you guys are excited about what you guys are trying to do, is that you're trying to you're trying to make sure that people aren't just run through a process, yes. and a transaction occurs, and you don't even check whether or not that's a really good decision for them. And that's what we really that's that's you know, in any of the things we do at legacy. Whether it's, it's putting together a plan for the, for the owner, uh, putting together uh, uh, plans for the leader, managing assets uh, that are within the company or personal assets. When we do those things, it's the same uh, approach and it's the same with them. And if we're not operating on the gravy with our clients and with the people that are, we're trying to bring value to, then they can call us out on it. And say, That's right. Hey, you said this over here with the grade eight and you're not, you know, that's it, it, so it, it's really one of those where at the end of the day, you, you know, you've brought the best value that you can bring and you've, and you've guided them through that conversation. And I don't know if anybody, it, you know, if you're a listener and you've been whitewater rafting, whether you've done it in a boat or a, you know, a, um, you know, a canoe or a kayak or something like that. If you've done it and you it's the first time on the river, and you know you're only going down that river one time, and you want to have the best time possible. You can say, "I'll just go ahead and do it myself." Then, and you're you're representing yourself. That's that's the reason they say don't represent yourself in a road, Don't represent yourself. This is another arena where you don't try to go do it yourself because you're going to have one or two buyers, and they know that they're in full control because you don't know what you're doing, you don't know why you're doing it, you don't know how you're doing it.
0: So you go down that river.
1: And you either get you a really good guy that's been down that river a thousand times and knows where every single little pebble is that can make or break your time and trip down that river. And that's really what is attractive about you guys using that analogy to being a river guide, Because you've been down and you've seen it and, and you know, you're able to, to be successful in that uh, experience, right? It's a successful experience and it's a successful outcome. And that, from a from a transaction standpoint, and those are really two different things that have to go together to pull in a positive uh, positive uh, relationship with folks. Uh, Very so, well said. Very yeah, well said. This is uh, and especially because the MA market is so hot right now, because people are saying, "Well, maybe I qualify. Maybe I don't. Maybe I need another you know three or four years to to consider that." So people are trying to make decisions that don't have a context and you guys can bring them that context for reason. and through founders you know, with your, your banking team there. Um, this is awesome. And, and we are really appreciate uh, the hard work you guys have put in and being able to have you on here to talk about the 17 reasons because this is this is a valuable conversation. This is a valuable thing. And, and for all those listening, if you know somebody that's going through this, Give them give them a, a, a little bit of a helping hand and point them in the direction of the 17th. That's our encouragement today. And, and Zane, appreciate very much your time and your energy and your passion uh, and our our, uh, our light values we agree on and what we think are drive us every day. Uh, we know that's a, we know that's a commonality between our forums and what you got going on. And uh, we wish you guys uh, the very best. And we are recording this on a Friday afternoon. It, we wish you guys a wonderful day.
2: Russ, thank you. Thank you for your partnership and what you've meant to me personally and, and our firm to help us be 17 Reasons. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody, for
1: joining. And make sure you guys pass the information on to who you can. And check out the links in the description below. Russ Clemmer with Legacy Advisory Partners on the 3 Wins Podcast. Thank you, Zane Terrence. And we'll talk to you guys on the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to the Three Wins Podcast. We have links to some awesome resources in the show notes. And if you haven't already done so, please click subscribe so you won't miss any future episodes of the Three Wins Podcast. This is Sean Lydon signing off for now. Until next time, we'll see you then.